Luke chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 20. Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news and great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at, the shepherds, at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Lord, We have this tradition of setting aside this part of our calendar year to remember this particular event, uh, your birth, your advent, your first coming to us, Lord. And because we do it every single year, it is a story that is both uh, arresting and yet familiar. It it is good for us to be looking back at this event, remembering why it happened and the desperate need we have 
before your mighty sovereign intervention into history in order to save us, your people, from our sins. Lord, as we look at this particular story once again, as we have many times in our life before this, I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us insight, and that you would, above all things, be pleased to show us you. And may we walk out of here, Lord, a little bit more in love with you, knowing you a little bit better than we did when we arrived. All for your great name's sake, Jesus. We pray and ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. I've been, when I prepare, I read and read and read and read and read and read and read the passage over and over and over again until it's, it's essentially memorized. I don't, won't have it word for word, but um, I, n- I know where I'm going and I know what the text is saying. And the, there are things that will pop into my mind, and it probably is the same for you, right? You're sitting there and you're doing your devotions, or maybe you were reading some, you heard somebody say something on the radio or a podcast, and you go and you look it up, and that takes you somewhere else, and you're reading, and your, your thoughts begin to kind of get caught up into the theme of the passage and other themes that relate to the passage. And God's word is so good like that, right? That there are so many treasures to be mined in the depths of Scripture here. But as I was reading over this passage this particular week, there was this thought that just kept nagging in my mind, and I wrestled with if this is where I wanted to begin or not, because it's about the doctrine of election. It's not typically where you go when you think of Luke chapter 2, and it's the first time my mind has ever went there. But what made my mind gravitate to that was certain passages. For example, you have in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that glorious passage where um, God, in speaking to his people Israel, he, he wants to remind them that as they go into the land of promise... That as they're going into that land, that they don't get caught up and carried away with the magnanimity of the moment, with the pride and haughtiness of I get to go in and do that. I, we're going into our land that is ours now, but rather that God reminds them that they of all people were nobodies. You were not chosen by God because you were more numerous than all of the nations. You were not chosen because you were mightier or you were wealthier or any of those kind of things than all of the nations. But rather, you were nothing. And I chose you and I called you simply that my name would be great and that I would keep my promises to you. In essence, it has nothing to do with them. It has to all do with the glory of God, right? Abraham was Ur of the Chaldees. I mean, the only reason we know Ur even existed is because of Abraham. It wasn't a big, huge metropolis of a place that we look back on with great archaeological fondness like Babylon or Egypt or something along those lines. And God called Abraham out of that land and God called him to himself. 
We look through the pages of the Old Testament and we see God choosing the younger over the other. Jacob and Esau, for example. And he does it for his own namesake and for his own righteousness. For his own glory to be on display. In the New Testament, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We read that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That he uses the despised things. He uses the things that are not to triumph over the things that are. What God does is he takes those things that the world counts as insignificant Those individuals that the world does not see great benefit and meaning to. And he uses those things in order to display his great glory and his great grace. I think about the disciples that Jesus ended up calling to himself. They were day laborers. They were, a few of them, anti-government rebels. And then oddly enough was a government lackey who was the tax collector amongst the bunch. That's the sense of humor God does have, that's for sure. But he brings these people together who are really nobodies in the whole scheme of the existence there of that time and that day and that age. And we look at this particular story here with Jesus. This is why I'm reminded of it. Because here we have a man of jo- named Joseph in an obscure, honestly, part of the nation. What might be considered of, you know, if we're thinking I'm doing in my, my history class that I'm taking, a study of the Industrial Revolution, this might, Nazareth might be the Pittsburgh of Israel, <laughs> Just grimy and just workforce and, you know, blue, blue, blue collar kind of people. The reason he was there is because, if you don't know this, that uh, carpenters, we have a very um, romanticized view of Joseph being a carpenter, right? Probably building beautiful gazebos for weddings and, you know, wonderful staircases spiraling on up to the second floor and that kind of thing. Though they were hard workers, and in fact, a good portion of their work was in the quarry. Because wood was necessary in order to mine and to get rock out in order to build things. You would wedge in wood and pour water and water and water on it, and it would expand and it would crack the rocks to the point where they were able to extract the rocks that they needed in order to go build. And the carpenters did that. So this is a... Not, uh, there's, there's not a whole lot in favor going on in Nazareth, which is why Nathaniel, when he's sitting under the tree, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? It isn't that it was a shady town and there was, you know, there probably was some of that, but it was really because it was just kind of like a, really? That's where all the steel workers live. That's where all the carpenters live. That's where like the menial task workers live. It's the outskirts. It's not Jerusalem. Nazareth, really? Mary, 
at this point, one of the most miraculous things. She is with child and she is still a virgin. Now, we know that this stigma stuck with Jesus all throughout his life. We see in the Gospels that his enemies say, well, we weren't born of fornication. What's the implication? The implication is there were some shady circumstances around his conception and his birth. And that maintains to today the enemies of the cross of Christ, the enemies of Christianity, even those who profess Christianity and are within the walls of Christianity who are secretly enemies will still deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But here she is with child. So here you have a man from a very blue-collar background, a very blue-collar existence, is betrothed to this young woman, probably 15, 16 years, maybe 17 at the most years old, and she is found to be pregnant. I mean, all of this says, yeah, no, that's not the Messiah. (laughs) Christ the King, in the lineage of David himself, going to come from this kind of pedigree? No, 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 no. But you see, here's why my mind goes to, or went, I think, this week to this particular doctrine of election, is because as Christians, there shouldn't be any proud Christians. Now, we're all partially sanctified at best. So we're all still going to have that pride within us to one degree or another. But being a Christian means that you are dead in your trespasses and sin, absolutely helpless and hopeless apart from God. In fact, God was against you and at war with you. You were by nature a child of wrath, deserving of his punishment, deserving of his hell that you would be owed simply for your existence because your rebel heart exists in opposition to God, in hatred, in wrath, in vehemence, in vengeance. You don't want anything to do with him. You didn't want anything to do with him. And God had to come into your life and invade your life and say, no, you are no longer a rebel. Here, let me remove all of that rebellious heart from you and put within you the very tender heart of God and he created in you a new humanity that he could do because a new humanity was being born here through the Virgin Mary pride shouldn't exist within us because we know we don't deserve salvation God owes us nothing 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 does he owe us. And yet he has seen fit in his grace, in his mercy, in his love, in his compassion to take a person like me and like you who lived in opposition to him under the first Adam, under original sin, and say, no, you're mine. And now we come and we worship the Lord in all joy and passion because of the great work he did within us. So all pride goes out the door. We have no room for boasting. We have no cause for proud, arrogant displays. 
No one in this room is better than anyone else in this room. You didn't come to the Lord because you were more wise or you were more capable or you were more emotionally in tuned or spiritually sensitive or, you know, whatever kind of phraseology we want to use. You came to the Lord because God decided you were mine. And he uses people, he calls people who are humble. And by humble, I don't mean they're humble in and of themselves. I mean, most often they are of a humble estate. He calls people to himself who the world is going to look at and go, really, that person is saved? Really, that person's a Christian? That person turned around and whatever they want to say, gave their heart to Jesus? I mean, there's all kinds of euphemisms out there. But the truth of the matter is, is God takes people who are not his people and makes them his people. And it confuses the world. It confounds them. It may, it's, a head scratcher is an understatement. And that's exactly how we see Jesus entering the world. And honestly, a good understanding of the Old Testament should lead us to not be surprised that this is the way he comes into the world. But you know what? People were dim. (laughs) And they were in their day in that age too. No one expected Jesus to come like this. Even though God straight gave him prophecy that he's going to come in a way like this. Now they look at passages like I read for our call to worship there in Isaiah. He's going to be mighty God, prince of peace. The government's going to be on his shoulders and people get in their mind... King of David, right? Son of David. He's going to be a mighty military man who's going to defeat Rome and throw all of that hostility that the Jews had experienced for almost a millennia off of them. The stigma of them going into exile would be removed because the Messiah would come and establish a Jewish empire on the face of the world. That's what they're looking for. I think the world's still looking for that. still looks to government. But Jesus didn't come like that. He did come. We looked last week, didn't we, at the fact that he is in the lineage of David. Not only that, but he fulfills the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we see here even that David's name is brought up several times in who Jesus is as the Messiah. But you see, Jesus chose to come into the world in these circumstances, in this way, and it really demonstrates to me the amazing idea that God has about he, how he needs to reveal himself. He reveals himself through the coming, through this young woman and her blue-collar husband. They give birth and there's not even any room for them in the inn. This is a predetermined plan from eternity past (laughs) that has been put into motion whereby God the Son, Almighty Creator of the universe, would come and be born and there wouldn't even be enough room for Him in a hotel nearby. 
But instead, he had to go to a cave on the outskirts of town or maybe a cave next to the inn where they stored the animals so that he could be born there. This is the predetermined plan of God Almighty to come in this way to this person at this time to these circumstances. And when she gave birth to him, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. It is a mild commentary on the fact that there is not going to be a place for Christ in the world. Now, this is going to take on greater and greater and greater emphasis and forms as we go through the Gospels. And as you read through them, you just see this evident again and again and again and again. Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of John, he says, the world isn't going to love you because it didn't love me. And it didn't love him from the very beginning. Well, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. They were keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, shepherds, not unlike carpenters, were also some of the lowest in terms of not only social strata, but economic strata in that day and age as well. So they would have been competitors for who's the most looked down upon and despised in terms of employment. And we, we know this from the Old Testament as well. You, you, you remember that passage? It's, it's at the end of Genesis. And Joseph's brothers come to him, and he reveals who he is, and they're kind of afraid of him, but he says, go back and get Dad and bring him back. You remember that whole story there? And when they go back and get Dad and bring him back, he tells his brothers that when you come into Pharaoh and you are presented before Pharaoh, make sure you tell him your shepherds. Because shepherds are despised, and Pharaoh will give you the land of Gothen. So Joseph knows there's this good land out there that will be plentiful for them to take care of all of their herds and their flocks, and they'll be able to grow and flourish. But it has to do with the fact that they are despised shepherds. And so, of course, they go in, they say that, and of course, Pharaoh gives them that land of Gothen. But the point is, is they were despised even back then. And we looked at this last week. David, the little, you know, pipsqueak of a son of Jesse, he was like not even considered one of the sons, at least not enough to bring before Samuel to see if he was supposed to be the king and anointed or not. He was out tending his flocks as a shepherd. Of course, there's one great psalm that we look at regularly is Psalm 23. And unfortunately, <clears throat> it's used a lot at funerals. I happen to do a few funerals, being a funeral ranger, so I hear it a lot. And it has to do with that phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not going to fear any evil. That's nothing wrong with that. It's good and it's used there but psalm 23 is a psalm of life not death because it has to do with god as the great shepherd taking care of his sheep throughout their life 
He leads them to good food. He gives them good water. He prepares a banquet before them in the presence of his enemies. You see, it's all about life. And yes, there is that instance about the shadow of death. But the point is, is that even in life, as I go through that point of death, I'm not going to fear any evil. You see, it's a sum of life. And it's a psalm of life because it points us to the fact that God is our great shepherd. He cares for us. He tends us. He provides for us. He leads and he guides us. And so all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, we find a despising of the shepherd by the world, but yet God looking very favorably upon the shepherd. And so even this particular instance shouldn't surprise us with our understanding of the Old Testament that the angels come and the first announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ is not to the Jerusalem Post. (laughs) It's not to the Roman Gazette. It's not to the biggest authorities of the world that a new king has been born. In fact, no mere king, but the very king of kings and lord of lords. No, the angels show up to shepherds just doing what they do, sitting out by night, watching their flock and making sure that they're safe and secure and well taken care of. An angel of the Lord appeared over them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear, understandably. Can I give you a little side note here, a little bonus? An encounter with God or one of his angels is never boring. I I, I have talked with so many people over the years who say, well, church is just boring. Well, the problem if church is boring is not within the nature of church itself, although I guess you could get a boring something happening during a service. But the reality is if you're coming with the very understanding that I'm worshiping God Almighty, my creator, the ordainer of my very existence and lover of my soul, the savior of my spirit so that I might be a part of his family and his kingdom, if I come to church, whatever church, with that understanding in mind, oh, beloved it is not going to be boring and I might come away from there filled with great awe and I might come away from there filled with great conviction and I might even come away from there filled with great fear and reverence because remember Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that we come to a holy mountain and we worship at the very throne of God and our God is a consuming fire and so they were filled with great fear The angel of the Lord has to calm them down, which is a a helpful thing for the angel to do. I mean, Jesus had to do it on several occasions, didn't he? Remember that one time where he was sleeping in the front of the boat, and as he is sleeping, the storm was raging and the boat was tossing, and even these veteran fishermen who were well acquainted with the navigation of the Sea of Galilee feared for their own lives and shook Jesus awake and said, Don't you care we're about to die? And Jesus stands up and I imagine stretches and wipes some sleepies from his eyes. Being a human, he did that. And stood up and said, what are you guys freaking out about? That's my paraphrase. 
And then he looks to the wind and the storm and he just speaks two words. Be still. Ice. Glass. A mirror. That's how the Sea of Galilee became in an instant. And the disciples of Jesus Christ himself, having seen everything that they had seen him do up until that point, it says they were filled with the very same thing, great fear. For who, who can speak to the wind and the waves and the weather and it obeys him? Fear is an appropriate response when we come and we encounter God, we encounter his angels, we encounter his supernatural works and acts, that's a healthy response. But he comes and tells us, fear not, like he did with these particular shepherds. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. These angels come and they appear to these shepherds and they tell them that they're... Gives them gospel news, good news, joy for all people because unto you is born in this day in the city of David, Savior, who is called Christ the Lord. So these shepherds, fearing but yet now being comforted by this angel, are given this good news that a Savior is born, and this Savior is Christ the Lord. And what they're going to find when they go is they go, they're going to find a baby in an odd place, in an odd situation, in a manger, which is, if you, you don't know, a food trough, for animals. Now we have cute little, like, you know, wooden things. There's going to be up one up there next week because um, that's what they put up every year. But it's, you know, it's a little, like, a, it's almost like a half a pallet that's folded together, you know, and then baby sits in there with some straw and it's so cute. But it's, it's just a food trough. There wasn't anything cute about it. But it was the only place where they had to lay him down. There's no crib, there's no bassinet. Just a manger. That's why it's a sign for them. It's so odd. It's unusual. This is where you're going to find the baby. And this is how you're going to know this is the baby. Is he's going to be wrapped like this and placed like this in a manger. And suddenly with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying. <clears throat> not singing. Saying. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. The angels were created by God as the worshipers in heaven before humanity was created. And they worship God there day and night, over and over and over and over again. And here they're dispatched to earth and they continue to worship God and give him glory. As it were, bringing those shepherds up, 
lifting them up into worship, lifting them up and their eyes heavenward rather than earthward, protecting their sheep. No, look up because God is good and he is going to bring peace with those with whom he is pleased. And of course, he's pleased with these shepherds for his own reasons because he gives them this very first announcement. And the angels went away from them and the shepherds said, Good night! What in the world? What the? What, what did we just see? What was that? Did you hear that? Did you? Did you see? Yeah, and well, let's go. I, tr- I tried to read the Bible existentially, right? And put myself into the Bible. I want to experience it as much as I can. I want to strap on the sandals of these guys. I want to put on a big fat robe and a cane if I can get a hold of one. And I want to be in the tech. I want to experience this as much as I can. And I walk away from reading this and seeing angels show up and I don't know how to respond, to be perfectly honest. I've never had any encounter with an angel. Supposedly that those who are the elect of God have a guardian angel, according to Hebrews chapter 2. I don't know the person. (laughs) Maybe they do, maybe I don't. I've never seen him, so there's that. But here they show up and these shepherds are just dumbfounded by what they have just seen. And rightly so, rightly so. I wish we had more information on these guys, right? There's so much in the Bible. You just want a little more of. These guys, what happened? Where did they go from here? We don't ever hear from them again. Were they, were they there and following Jesus? Were some of these guys youngsters? And once he was in his 30s, they were in their 50s, 60s, and they were still following him around? Did they die before? Did they all live in faith based upon what they had seen? I can't help but think, yes, they must have. What an event. They see this and then they go. And they go to see where this was happening. Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened that the Lord made known to us. So they went with haste, in earnest, as quick as they could. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying concerning the child that had been told to them. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. God had been silent for a long time. And suddenly, an angel comes and speaks to Zechariah, Gabriel, there in the temple as he's performing his regular sacrifices. Tells them that he is going to give, well, he's not going to give birth. His wife is going to give birth to the herald of the Messiah, John the Baptist. He will go on to be known as And then an angel visits Joseph. And then an angel visits Mary. And now angels come and visit the shepherds. It's evident God is doing something. 
something mighty. And yet each and every time something new is revealed and new is given, you see there is still what? Wonder. Marveling. They all wondered at what the shepherds have told them, but Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and pondered them. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. They go away and they heard the story of the angel that the angel told them. They went and saw And then they went away glorifying and praising God. As we wrap up, I'm reminded of another event where somebody saw and praised God and gave him glory. And that was Thomas there at the very end after the resurrection. And remember his words, unless I see his hands with my own eyes and See his side pierced, I won't believe. And the Lord, after a week of doubt from Thomas, I like to call him honest Thomas myself. He is there in the upper room with all of the other disciples and Jesus appears to them and does just that. Show him his hands and shows him his side and Thomas falls down and worships Jesus. And he says, do you remember these words? You do, I know you do. He says, blessed are you who see and believe, but even more blessed are those who without seeing believe. All these people had wonderful, amazing experiences. There are people all over the country chasing down supernatural experiences. There are people here in our own home state, close by us, who are running around chasing supernatural experiences all the time as much as they can. But even the most greatest experience that Peter had himself when he saw the glorified Lord there on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said in his epistle as he was writing to the brethren, he said, you know, we've seen this glorious thing, but the most wonderful thing is believing the truth of the word of God. Now we have this here before us and we're in this time where we look back for 2,000 years and there we don't have angels arriving and giving us these declarations. God has given us his completed word and he is satisfied to do so. And if he, the God of all eternity, who ordained all things, including how he would be born, when he would be born, to whom he would be born, in all of these areas, this is the way he was going to come into the world He was going to fulfill the law and he was going to die and atone for sins in our place and be raised from the dead to prove to us once and for all that we can in fact be saved by faith in him alone. If he's given us his word, it is absolutely enough for us. And so as we leave here and we walk out these doors here tonight, my hope and my prayer is that your hearts would be stirred with love and a joy for Christ our Savior. That your thoughts would be upon him and talk with them with your loved ones and maybe this week as you gather for Christmas with your family and your friends and you will have the opportunity to talk about spiritual matters. Take that opportunity. 
Don't think, oh, I'm not going to stir the pot. I'm not going to, you know, I want things to be just, you know, glass like the Sea of Galilee after Jesus, right, kind of thing. Maybe the Lord has a desire to use you to advance his kingdom and you speaking those words to that person would be the means by which they would come to salvation. Maybe you won't. Maybe it's a seed that's planted. Or maybe it's a brother and sister in Christ who needs just to hear that word from the Lord. Don't be shy. Speak about gospel. Speak about the word of God. Go to this story and just read through it, if you will. Talk about the things here tonight and add your thoughts as you talk amongst yourselves about these things from Scripture and why we're reminded that we celebrate this every single year, why it's important that we do. Because Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, came to seek and to save that which was lost. His birth was not just a birth for birth's sake. His birth was a means to the end of saving those who would be his. And he came and he accomplished his mission and said, it is finished. And now we get to enjoy the blessings that come through a birth according to the law, a life lived according to the law, a death under the curse of the law, and a resurrection to prove to us that the law has been fulfilled in our place. Amen. Father God, we praise you. We praise you. We praise you. You are so good. A story like this is, is... It is captivating. And at the same time, it, 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 it jars us because it is so not what is expected. And it just isn't the way life ever works. But it did this time, in this way, in this place, because you desired for it to happen. For your glory and for the redemption of your people. And we sit here as blessed recipients of that redemption. And so we pray, Lord, as we continue to worship you here this evening, that our hearts would be filled with joy and peace. And just like the angel said, because of these glad tidings. We love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. In your name, amen.